Welcome everybody to the Struggling Scientist podcast. This is a podcast by scientists, for scientists, anybody science adjacent, and perhaps even hobbyists. My name is Susanna, and I'm here with my co-host, Jeroen. Hi. So today we have an episode where uh, we're going to talk to the first author, Denise van Uden. We're going to talk about the paper that she published. And this paper is called Central Role of Dendritic Cells in Pulmonary Arterial Hypertension in Human and Mice. Welcome, Denise, to our podcast. Hi, everybody. So um, we're here to talk about a paper that you are first author on. So first, congratulations with this paper. Yeah, thank you so much. Really happy with it. <laughs> I can imagine. Now, Denise is a good friend of mine, so I've already heard a lot of the stories and it, it was a struggle. Can we say that, that it was a struggle? Yeah, definitely. You can definitely say that, yes. <laughs> okay, so how are you feeling about getting the paper published now? Really happy, but also really relieved, actually. I think um, that might be something that a lot of PhD students feel because they are struggling so much to get your real first uh, research paper out. I had a review before, but still, that doesn't really feel like a real first publication, right? Mm -hmm. So having your data and the science that you did in a paper, it also felt as a relief, like, okay, I might be able to do this. (laughs) So I was really happy as well. Nice, nice. So let's start with a little bit of an introduction. So we try not to do the often awkward introduction that you see so so many times at um, congresses where another person just introduces all the random things that you have done. And like I always think they are a little awkward. Instead, we would like to ask you what you want people to know about you. Yeah, I really like it that you guys do it in a different way, these introductions, I have to say. Um, well... I'm Dutch, born and raised in Rotterdam, very proud of that. So that's always something that I, uh, I mention. <laughs> nice. Um, and what people need to know about me? Well, I think I'm an uh, immunologist by training. Well, as Suzanne also mentioned, we already know each other. And that's because we did our bachelor's together, biomedical sciences. And after that, I did the uh, research master in infection immunity in Rotterdam. So that's really when the immunological part started. And actually also the subject of my PhD is about um, immunology. So I find that very interesting. Um, well, I'm in the fifth year of my PhD. I tried for a long time to keep convincing people that I'm in my first year, but now I'm really not able to do that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so I have to come clean. I'm in my fifth year now, but in the finishing period as well. So that is uh, quite exciting and also nerve wracking at the same time. And yeah, that's a little bit of an introduction about me. Well, I definitely could tell that you're an immunologist from your paper. <laughs> it was a lot for me since I am not an immunologist at all. It was a, it was a lot to to read through and to understand. I have to say. Um, so, how are you liking your PhD so far? Are you still enjoying it in your fifth year? It's a tricky question. I think yeah, a lot of people they compare the PhD with a roller coaster, and that's really something you know. It's really how it feels. So your ups and your downs. Like when I published that paper that we are discussing today, it was really an up, great moment. I like in my PhD. But I have to say now that I have so much stress of finishing up and everything, I'm a little, little bit less liking it at the moment, I have to say. To mm, yes. So to come back to that roller coaster me- uh, metaphor, would you say the ups are worth all the downs? Mm, in the end, it is. Yeah. But I also think that you appreciate more the ups when you're really finished. So 
I don't know if you guys also have this feeling, but if you talk to other PhD students, they also, during their PhD, they have the same feelings as we do. Mm -hmm. But if you talk with them after they had, you know, the whole defense and everything worked out, they are really positive. So I think you appreciate your ops more when you're like finished and you have all the stresses done. So, um, but I, yeah, I do, I do like it. I have to say, mm -hmm. and what I like the most, and also what I got more appreciated during my, doing my PhD actually is that at a certain moment you start to realize that you are really doing something for patients. So my PhD, I'm really looking into a disease mm -hmm. and I also help during my PhD a lot with this patient days, you know, mm -hmm. and also when you're standing there and patients are talking to you that even though you cannot contribute maybe to finding a cure for their disease, which is something I was still thinking when I started the PhD that I would uh -huh. be able to do something like this, but just to get more to know about their disease and to understand it better already helps them so much. So yeah. that's something I started to appreciate more and more during my PhD. So yeah, I do like it. I have to say. Is it also something you specifically chose this spot for because you felt like this was a spot that you could do that more? Yeah, because uh, the PhD uh, uh, project that I did, it was both uh, mouse work as well as human work. Mm -hmm. So it's really like uh, the basic science you get to know and also like the translational part. And I figured out that I like the translational part the most, to be honest. Okay, yeah. Well, that's good to know, for, especially for uh, going further, I guess. So what made you want to do a PhD to begin with? Why did you choose it? Yeah, I think, well, of course, uh, during your studies, you have your internship and you're like your boss of your little project. Mm -hmm. And the reason that I wanted to do a PhD is that I really wanted to be like mastering a certain subject. So that you really have your own project, which you can manage and that you know all about um, and really can dive into. Because usually your internships are quite short, right? And your PhD is quite long. Yes. So it gives a lot of opportunities to really get in depth in the subject that you're working on and become a little bit, um, yeah, how would you say that? Um, like an expert. I still find that always scary to say. Mm -hmm. <laughs> expert. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. Indeed. You never really feel that yourself that you're an expert. But um, yeah, that's what I that's what I want, why I wanted to do a PhD actually. Get that feeling and to really get into that subject more than that you could do with an internship, for example. Yeah. Yeah. I also happen to know that you of course did an internship also in the same lab as where you ended up doing your PhD. Was yeah. it very different, an internship and a PhD? Yeah, definitely. Uh, for me, it was also a different subject, PhD and the internship. So I uh, really get, um, people might think that you have like a smooth start because uh, you already worked there and everything and been in the lab there. Of course, you know where everything is, so that's handy. Mm -hmm. But having the new subject was really, uh, yeah, it was really different from the internship, but also like the responsibility you have yourself. I think that's also something that a lot of uh, PhD students will recognize mm -hmm. uh, is that now you have to be in charge of everything. Yeah. So not only the science, the experiments, uh, your lab journal, but also all the politics surrounding it, the planning of the meetings, get people on board on your projects, uh, all this stuff that's new. Yeah, so. and it's usually most of the work, I have to say, all mm. the stuff around it and not even just the experiments that you're doing. All the stuff <laughs> around, around it takes up most of your time. And I didn't expect that, to be honest, when I started. No, no, I can imagine that. So what did you actually like about the group that you ended up choosing, though? Because you did both the internship and the PhD now with them. 
It's, I have to say, we have a very nice group. So a lot of activities outside of uh, work that we do always. And also back then when I was uh, an uh, intern, that was also already the case. So it's really like um, they're very warm and welcome as well. Also for new students that come in now, everybody is just taking along as full member of the group, let's say. So that's what I liked a lot and going together for lunch. Um, yeah, that's what really made me also decided to stay in the department, actually. And if you could like start all over, right? You are just, again a, a student trying to find a PhD position. Would you choose the same subject or would you choose something else or would you pay so extra attention to something or like? I find that a really tricky question, actually, a difficult one. Mm. I have been thinking about it a bit. Um, yeah, I think I would choose maybe, um, so I didn't really, how do you say that, consciously choose the subject that I'm working on. I choose more the group than the subject, to mm -hmm. be honest. Yeah, I don't know, actually. I find it quite difficult. <laughs> well, I have to say, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing to choose the group because those are the people that you have to work with for so long. And if that doesn't work out, you're in real trouble. And that's honestly what goes wrong most often. So. Also in our advice for future PhD students, we definitely recommend people to get to know the group mm. and not just yeah. choose the subject. Because, uh, yeah, you can have a very fun subject that you think is absolutely amazing and then be with horrible people for four years and be absolutely miserable, I think. Yeah, that's definitely true. And I also think, well, if I speak for myself, and I think a lot of people have that, you can find interest in any subject that you're working on, actually. Yeah. You always find something you find interesting. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. As long as it's immunology, right? <laughs> no, also outside immunology. And happens oh, to be in Rotterdam. I would say that in the beginning for my PhD, but now I do. <laughs> yeah, that's a little bit of an introduction. Let's talk about the actual paper. Um, now, of course, our listeners are not all immunologists. So can you give us a short, of short summary about your paper and what you think the main message is in um, hopefully a way that most people understand, including me? <laughs> yes, of course. So I think until now I haven't told you what my PhD is all about and also the paper, which disease. Mm -hmm. uh, the disease is uh, pulmonary arterial hypertension. And it's a disease in which you have your pulmonary arteries that are remodeled and have occlusion. So they're really like, uh, it's difficult for the blood to get through. And that's what gives very high pressures. And as a result, as you can imagine, the right ventricle has to work really hard. So mm -hmm. there's remodeling of the right ventricle. And in the end, this can lead to heart failure and also death. So it's quite a serious disease. Only why you have this remodeling of your pulmonary arteries is something that's not known. Um, there are some risk factors, but um, actually, if we speak about idiopathic pulmonary arterial hypertension, which is also a part of the paper, uh, well, the name already says it, it's not known what is the underlying risk factor. Um, but there is some evidence actually that there might be something wrong with the immune system and our group already did uh, work previously that showed that in a mouse model uh, which is lacking the NF-kappa-B regulator A20 in specific type 1 conventional dendritic cells so here's where the immunology comes in mm -hmm. because as you might know dendritic cells they are the ones that really start your immune system they see um, um, things that are worrying for the immune system and then activate the T-cells. And this specific type of dendritic cells activates uh, CD8 T-cells that you might know, so cytotoxic T-cells. And we saw that these mice who have this altered CDC1s, they develop this pulmonary hypertension phenotype. 
And this specific paper that we're talking about today, there we wanted to dive a little bit deeper into this mouse model. So for example, we looked also in the heart, which we haven't done before to see if we can find dendritic cells there. And actually we do. And we wanted to know how strong this DC phenotype is in these mice. So what we did is that we also gave a, a general uh, immune system activator to these mice, which is a toll acroceptor ligand. And actually what we saw is that it did not enhance this pulmonary hypertension phenotype. So it shows that the phenotype that you see in this uh, mouse model, which has this altic CDC ones, is very strong. And also when we cross this mouse model to an to another one, uh, which actually had a mutation in the BMPR2 gene, that's also something specific for the disease of pulmonary arterial hypertension. So you can also have it as a heritable form, and usually there's something wrong in this gene. But also when we cross this mice, actually we saw it didn't enhance the phenotype. So it told us that uh, there's really a unique role for the CDC1s in uh, disease. And we also had a translational part in this, and that's what I really like because this is, of course, all in a mouse model, but is it also relevant for the human? So what we actually did is by histology, we looked into uh, lungs of IPH patients to see if we could find this disease and if they were close to the CD8 T cells. That would tell us that there are perhaps CDC1s. And that is something that we really saw. So it is a good um, suggestion that the CDC1 might play an important role in this uh, pathogenesis, pathogenesis of this disease, actually. So that's a little bit where the paper is about. Still a lot of immunology, I think. <laughs> it's always difficult to make it. I uh... mean, that's part of your research, right? So there's no way to avoid that completely. And it's True. also very interesting. That's not the problem. It's just often very complex immunology, I have to say. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I guess you like that part also. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely. Yes. So it's really interesting that these mice sort of by themselves develop this without you actually doing anything extra you just if they get a bit older they already have pulmonary um, hypertension and quite strongly again i guess yeah it's really cool yeah it's a mouse model which has this so um, spontaneous is quite unique because there are certain mouse models in this field but there are always like triggers given to this mice to uh, become uh, to develop pulmonary hypertension so it's quite a interesting model what kind of triggers do they try or use or yeah, usually it's like uh, hypoxia for example so because mm -hmm. this gives the remodeling of your pulmonary uh, arteries so usually that's uh, one of the models that's being used oh, that uh, ties in very well with our previous episode all about blood breathing <laughs> <laughs> oh I'm, uh, I'm not sure if denise will like getting tied into that one <laughs> <laughs> I still have to listen to that one, though. It's very, <laughs> very funny. You should read it. Uh, listen to it, I mean. That, that, that was an episode. That was an episode, <laughs> yes. Um, so there are a lot of awesome experiments in your paper. Which one are you the most proudest of or happy with? And of course, not necessarily the one that with the best result or even that made it to the paper. But what was your favorite, your favorite experiment? Now, that's an easy one to answer. That was really the histology of the IPH lung, so the human part. And that's because it's, first of all, unique material. And also, we needed different collaborations to get this experiment done. Mm -hmm. So, collaboration with Paris and also one with the pathology department of the Erasmus. So, that's what I'm most proud of, actually. Because you have all these different um, yeah, people and groups that you have to collaborate with. So, that's what I'm really proud of, actually. And were those collaborations already in place for this project? Or you needed to set all that up uh, or needed to be set up still? 
mostly set up and especially me personally. So with pathology, for example, there were already with the department uh, collaborations, but myself, I didn't have any uh, yet. So that was something to set up. Mm -hmm. And with Paris was a new collaboration. So that was quite exciting. Oh, cool. And you see how much work goes into just one figure of this paper, right? All these these things that come, come with it that you really don't see in a paper. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So uh, maybe to counteract what uh, Suzanne just asked, what experiment was sort of the biggest struggle? I think all the mouse work, to be honest. (laughs) (laughs) Because, um, well, to be very honest with you. So uh, first of all, we didn't have the plan of all these uh, mice experiments put it in one paper because we had different hypotheses, but that didn't work out. So that was like, uh, yeah, that was a little bit of a struggle, Mm. I have to Mm. say. Not only doing the mice experiments, but also uh, trying to understand the results that came mm. out of it. Yeah. So, um, which we managed in the end very nicely. But uh, I needed a little bit help of my professor in this, to be honest, because mm. first I thought, okay, so it didn't. It's not the result that I was expecting. So, what to do now? You know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's never a straightforward uh, conclusion of we started with this hypothesis and there it goes, but. Uh... We put this piece together, this piece together, like Lego blocks, and hopefully, yeah, I think we have something here. Indeed, indeed, yeah. Yes. That's also something you don't realize eh, when you start. You think, okay, I have this question, and I think answer B or C is coming there. And if it's not, then it's for like, okay, and now. Yeah. yeah, and often also these these proposed projects, they sound so well thought out and planned, and then all these different different like branches of your research, it never is how it ends up to be. No, that's true. And that's also difficult sometimes. Yeah. I myself didn't have a very, very like defined project. In the end, I uh, I started out with one and the other ones I sort of developed or added on later. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm honestly sort of glad that I didn't have this, all these expectations about what the projects and where I was supposed to get them because I can imagine that there's a real struggle. Yeah, and I also think that Usually in these proposals, there are so many um, like ideas and experiments that are suggested. But if you see how much time science takes, mm-hmm. it's impossible to try to do everything. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. So which part of working on the paper did you enjoy the most? The actual writing, reading, learning more, or designing the figures or the actual experiments? And I like most, I think, designing the figures and also the writing part. That's what I liked the most because then you see like, so as I mentioned before, it was not the most expected result in the beginning, but uh, when you start writing and making figures, it really becomes a story. So that's what I liked a lot. Then for all of a sudden, then you see like, oh, but wow, it's quite exciting research that I did actually. I mean, it's quite a nice story into this. So that's what I liked the most. Yeah, that it all comes together neatly in yeah. the end anyway. Uh, yeah. Was it uh, difficult for you to find the time to do the writing? That's always yeah. one of my yeah. my biggest problems, I have to say. Yeah, even though you find uh, your schedule yourself dedicated time for the writing, still it's so easy to do other stuff. <laughs> well, it's not only easy, but sometimes there's all this other stuff comes in and like demands your attention and like emails and this and that and organizing. Yeah. So it's it's horrible. And you have your other projects, of course, on the side because it's not yes. like this is your only project. So yeah. you, you can also not leave the other projects. You also need to do something about those. Yeah. It's quite a, yeah, a challenge. Yeah, I'm now also in one of those writing periods and it's no fun. <laughs> I know that you like doing the experiments. I like, I like doing the experiments, yes. <laughs> so um, a very annoying question. 
But um, since publishing this, have you seen any any mistakes that haunt you still? I never. Uh, you don't <laughs> want to read it. it. <laughs> That's honestly, no. everybody says that, that they don't read it anymore of the publishing because they're too afraid. I know that if you have your defense, I might need to re reread it. Actually, uh -huh. So then I have no choice and probably will find my typos. But until now, I didn't do that. So. <laughs> oh, yeah. Let's see. And you don't know something. Yeah, exactly. I have to say, I uh, really liked your, your paper, but it is confusing that sometimes genes and then their proteins have different names. And I mean, that's, that's not something you can do anything about, of course, but that's so confusing for me. It doesn't make it easier, right? No. Most of the names are quite complicated, actually. Yeah, that too. And then you have all these cytokines also that pop up. And yeah, it's mm. a lot. For non-immologists. I was there when uh, she was reading the paper out loud, trying to pronounce the names. And I was like, oh my God. <laughs> we'll let, we'll like let the Denise say this. Yes. How do, how do you TNF alpha IP3 DNGR1 knockout mice? What? <laughs> I always say TNF AP3 DNGR1 knockout mice. <laughs> oh, you're practiced in this. Yes, of course. She's had to give presentations on this. I have the same thing with my lysoplasma legends. <laughs> almost, almost, I got it. Done. Okay. But do you guys also do sometimes? So sometimes when I have a presentation and you're doubting about these difficult words, <laughs> I use Google Translate. <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> that actually a really smart one. <laughs> I usually ask Jaron since he has a pretty good uh, pronunciation mm. of most things. <laughs> yeah. Have you tried to explain to your family and friends what your paper is about and what did they think? and did they look at it or? Oh, Susanna knows this. I tried to explain you <laughs> for sure. <laughs> I don't know if you read it after that. I can imagine you might not. <laughs> I think I did open it and then saw all the immunologist stuff and then reread the abstract and then gave up, to be honest. I have read it now. So, yeah. Very proud of that, actually. No, but I tried to also tell, for example, my parents, they were always really interested. But also during the process, I thought already a lot about it. So they could quite well understand it, actually. So they didn't read the paper, but I really explained it to them and they were very interested as well. So that's really nice, actually. Yeah. So that they also know a little bit where you were busy with, you know? Yeah. I usually show figures or like the pictures that I made, the, the graphical abstracts or something. I have to say the histology pictures in my paper are quite a nice one to show people. <laughs> yes, exactly. We are very excited to be able to introduce you to our new sponsor, Jenny AI. Not only does Jenny make our podcast possible, it also makes our life as scientists so much easier. Jenny is an all-in-one writing assistant that has everything that we have been missing in other AI tools. Yes, first off, unlike other AI tools, it actually finds accurate information in papers and cites its sources. It does not make things up and only uses real verified information that you can then also check the source of. Second, it's a writing assistant trained for academic papers and helps you write your paper by suggesting the next sentence or the end of your sentence. Or, if you get really stuck, you can ask it to write an entire paragraph, completely removing the writer's block I so often struggle with when I don't know the right words to make my point. It helped me write an introduction to a paper I've been struggling with in half an hour. It even suggests which papers to cite. You can add your own library or search the entire internet for papers. Just type the add symbol to easily add a reference and it gets automatically added to the reference list. And the last thing we absolutely love is that it has an AI chatbot that can see your document and give feedback on how to improve your manuscript. Or you can ask it questions, such as what are the potential therapeutic benefits of dot dot dot, and it will search through the papers for you for the answer. 
I can only say that my stress level has gone down significantly since I started using Jenny. Check out the free version now at thestrugglingscientist.com slash Jenny. And if you love it, use the code SCIENCE20 for a 20% discount. So some specific questions about your, pa- about your paper, of course. Um, so how did they actually find that, or how did you guys find that these TNF-alpha-IP3 no- DC knockout mice developed this pH? Was that something you were looking for or how did that work? It was a little bit by, um, uh, so there was some data already in literature that perhaps dendritic cells might be interested in this, uh, regarding this disease. And we already had this mouse model and we did previous work with this. Uh, we find also some other uh, diseases in there, for example, or we used it in certain models. Um, so it was quite easy to look into this to see because our left or the group where I'm in, actually we have a big interest in uh, dendritic cells. Mm-hmm. So have, we have quite a few mouse models which have like alterations in specific subsets of dendritic cells, for example. And when this literature was out there that perhaps dendritic cells might play an important role, it was easy to test it to see if there was something in there. And actually, surprisingly, we saw that there was really an enlargement of the right ventricle in these uh, mice, in the hearts of these mice. So that was the first step. And then it started to further look and really characterize this model uh, to see if it really had a pH phenotype. Nice. So this TNF-alpha uh, IP3 knockout just inhibits DC function in quite a broad way then, I guess. Yes, it does. Yes. And specific about this one, because it's crossed with the DMGR1. So we also have it crossed with other uh, mice. But because it's in the DMGR1 gene, it's really in a specific type 1 conventional endotic cells. So that oh. makes it different. Yeah. Okay. You kind of already touched on this, I guess. You weren't really expecting some of these results, for example, when you crossed the two mice lines together and you were expecting a more severe or faster uh, sort of pH phenotype, but you didn't end up seeing that in the end. And I sort of was reading your discussion as to why that might be the case. Do you think it's still worth it in the end to maybe try a different BMP R2 yeah, knock-in uh, phenotype or a different pheno- uh, mouse background? Yeah, I do think so. because. It's not the strongest phenotype. So you have a lot of different BMPR2 mice and some have a more strong phenotype. So it could be that it was just not strong enough. Mm. So I still think it's worthwhile to see, or for example, also um, to test since hypoxia is a model that's been used a lot in pH mm. to see if you give hypoxia to these mice, if they develop more severe pH. Oh, yeah, so that's still interesting quite one. interesting. But that's really like a different model where we also yeah. didn't really have experienced uh, with. So that was more difficult to to perform. Do you already have like a different BMPR mouse available? Because otherwise I can imagine that also takes some time to set up and, you know, PHG only lasts so long. Yeah, that's true. So no, we don't actually. Even the BMPR2 we used in this paper, it was also a collaboration. So Mm. we really had to get it from Cambridge to our institute. So that took a long time as well because of all the paperwork you need to arrange and health certificates and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, your lab is, of course, very interested in these dendritic cells and these pul- pulmonary arterial hypertension that sort of came up as a lucky trial, I guess. <laughs> but is, are all your projects about pulmonary arterial hypertension now? Are you the expert in your lab or um, <laughs> <laughs> how did this work? Now my piece, well, my subjects changed a bit. So mm-hmm. um, I'm also looking at other lung diseases, actually. And I also look during my internship in other lung diseases. But the biggest part is definitely pulmonary arterial hypertension. 
So at this moment, uh, me and another PhD student in our lab, who's also second author on the paper, we are the two PhD students working on the subject. So uh, we're the experts in this, let's say. Is it difficult sometimes that you know, know maybe more than your PI about this very specific disease? Um, no, I think because it's such a big part of immunology. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, my PI knows a lot more about this. So okay. that's not something I really notice, I have to say. And uh, yeah, there's also a lot of other expertise, like from the clinic side um, in our department. So... Yeah, no, I don't forget this feeling. Okay, yeah, well, with the with the the tips that we asked for future PhD students, it was one of the the comments that that we got that sometimes difficult to be expected to be the main knowledge base on a specific subject in your group, especially if it's something that your group hasn't done before. So uh, glad to hear that that's not really a problem for you. Yeah, I never experienced as a problem. No. And I think also in congresses, for example, you also can discuss about this, right? Or mm-hmm. uh, sometimes you get invited to give a certain presentation, like in a focus group, always working on pulmonary hypertension or uh, this kind of stuff. So then you also have like, um, you learn more from this and if you are, how much you really know about the subject, because for sure, I don't know everything. <laughs> no, of course not. But I never experienced this as a problem, I have to say. Okay, that's nice. But I think also because such a big part of my project is immunology. Mm-hmm. And that's really like the foundation of our department. So, Yeah, of course. So um, some more general PhD questions. What do you think was so far the biggest hurdle to get to this point of the PhD? The experiments, the people, Corona, like what was the, the main problem? Struggle. If I look back to my PhD, I think so the first year I kind of wasted <laughs> Because I was trying to set up a technique that didn't work in the end, and I might have uh, tried too long. Mm, and I know so that's funny because I don't know if that also has been said uh, to you too. But when I started, they said, "Yeah, don't worry. Your first year you probably you will do stuff that ends up in, like in no paper." And I thought, "No, for me it's gonna be different." Yeah, yeah, yeah yes. <laughs> <laughs> I had exactly the same. Yeah. Well, my first year <laughs> stuff is still not in a paper, so um, <laughs> yeah, no. So weird, right? So. Yeah, they were actually true in the end. <laughs> but the, so that's, I think, the biggest hurdle, that I spent too much time on something that doesn't didn't work. So in the end, it was not really efficient. No. I also, I sometimes see first-year PhD students already being so completely stressed out about literally everything. And then I always try to give them the advice, just, just relax, it's just your first year. But I remember also being like that a lot in my first year. Yeah. It's also you find you already feel like the pressure from the beginning that you have this certain amount of time to finish. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's the thing, and I think also looking back, maybe. Uh, so in our department, it is the case that you have a uh, co-promoter, which is like your daily supervision, and then you have your promoter. But in the beginning of my PhD, he got involved when you're a little bit further with a certain project. So you have like a manuscript or are close to a manuscript. And I think looking back, it might be, would have been better if I would um, try to get him into the project a little bit earlier. So uh, before already this writing and this figure making phase. And of course you have your meetings, like your general lab meetings, mm-hmm. but you cannot never go really in depth in the research in this kind of meetings. So that's also something I think, um, yeah, that was a little bit of a, a hurdle looking back, but also something that I would change if I would do it again. 
Um, so what advice would you give yourself if you were, would found yourself at the end of your first year again, um, or even before starting the PhD? I think this part, so trying to involve the right people uh, as soon as possible, mm-hmm. even though in that moment it feels like maybe it's not necessary yet or you're not far enough yet. That's how I felt quite often. Just do it. And I would also give myself the advice to not spend too much time on things that are not working. So I'm a person that really wants to try to make it work. And I think sometimes I went a little bit too far in this. Okay. Well, that's good advice then. Um, So you are, of course, now writing your thesis and I guess also still working on other papers. Are you doing anything different for your next paper? For example, the advice that you just gave, are you already applying it now? I try. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's going a little bit smoother than my first paper, I think, because you know now a little bit more where to pay attention, like uh, how to make your figures uh, look nicer and less versions, let's say. Mm -hmm. But still, it takes so many versions before you get till the end. And every time something else needs to be changed or you want to change a little bit of the storytelling or... Mm -hmm. Yeah, I hope I took something from my first paper. (laughs) Do you have any general advice for our listeners that are, are trying to begin a PhD or uh, really, uh, writing a paper? Yeah, so for writing a paper, I think what worked really well for me is uh, first start with your figures. So mm. because with the figures, you make your story and that makes it also really easy to then write your uh, results section, actually. So that's something that I would give as an advice. And for people that want to start a PhD, um, I think the way I also got into the group and like you, what you already said as well, like really um, the place is more important where you end up than the subject. So really try to figure out how to do this. Yeah, nice. What did you enjoy most about doing the research, tackling big problems like the disease or learning the new, the different techniques and stuff like that, setting up collaborations? I like the setting up collaborations a lot. It's also something that now in my paper I'm still doing. Mm-hmm. Because you also have like people with different um, expertise. So that's really, I really like that a lot, actually. But also tackling the big problems to be able to yeah, give a small part of the solution or understanding of a disease and being part of this. That's also something that I really liked. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Having that actual impact. Uh... Yeah. Mm-hmm. Even though it's small, <laughs> we're not solving the disease. That's something that I was hoping in the beginning, but no. Four years, will be done. <laughs> yeah. uh, a small part if yeah. i could make like a small part of understanding it would be that would be awesome yes so um what are your next plans i guess after the phd actually uh i recently got a new job oh. so uh, that's very exciting i'm uh starting there in february looking forward to it very different no immunology <laughs> wow <laughs> yeah, so it's not necessary you can see <laughs> But also research and really it's more uh, to help patients. So really um, implementation of uh, patient care. So that's something what I also noticed during my PhD that I really like. So I'm quite excited to uh, excited to start this new uh, new step. Oh, nice. Yeah. You really get to do uh, what you love most from your PhD, I guess. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Oh, exciting. I guess that were uh, all our questions. Do you have anything to add? last minute or um, are you happy with how the, the episode went really happy and i want to thank you guys i didn't have the opportunity yet to thank you to be uh, no problem awesome no podcast. problem <laughs> <laughs> thanks thanks i really like it 
Oh, I'm so glad. I uh, we always love to hear that people actually like all the all the gibberish we talk sometimes. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, if anybody has any questions, you can always reach out via our website, thestrugglingscientist.com, or via, via our email address, thestrugglingscientist.hotmail.com. Um, and you can also find us on social media. Yes, you can check us out on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram, all just struggling scientists everywhere. Thank you all for listening, and I uh, hope you listen again next time. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye.